you have a Bible this morning, I invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 2. If you're using a pew Bible this morning, that's going to be page 1029. 1029. Writer David Levy says this, Compromise has been a cancer in the church from its inception. Compromise has been a cancer in the church from its inception. Now, we know that not all compromise is bad. Not all compromise is sinful. We can and do make healthy compromises for the glory of God and the good of others. But any compromise that concedes God's truth for selfish Sinful purposes, really any concession of God's truth, is to be rejected. Any compromise that would involve us conceding God's truth is to be rejected. In Revelation chapter 2, we read Jesus' letter to the third church here in these two chapters. This is the church in Pergamum, or some of your Bibles might say Pergamus. This church is characterized or was characterized by moral compromise. We're going to see an interesting thing in the next three churches. In the church here, Pergamum, they are characterized by compromise. The next church is Thyatira. Thyatira is characterized by corruption. The third church is the church of Sardis. And it is called a dead church. Do you see the trajectory? Compromise invites corruption. And corruption leads to death. How does the church die? Compromise, corruption, then death. This is the trajectory of a church that compromises. This is the the trajectory of our faith when it is compromised. And we can see how this process begins in this letter, starting in verses 12, going through verse 17, where we learn about this church called Pergamum. Look at verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum writes, Pergamum was a city in in Asia and said to be uh, the most illustrious, most distinguished city of Asia. It, It contained a library of 200,000 volumes. Some of you who don't like to read don't really care about that, but that's a lot of volumes. And it was second only to Alexandria in Egypt. Well, not only was it a, a distinguished city, it also was a religious city. In fact, it was the religious capital of the province of Asia. It was religious, but it was pagan. It was, it was saturated with pagan religions. It was home to pagan cults, such as the cult of Athena, Dionysus, another god, who's the god of healing, as well as Zeus. In fact, for Zeus, there was a great altar that was constructed. An altar so great that it was considered one of the the wonders of the ancient world. It was a distinguished city, it was a religious city, and it was a political city. It was very close with 
Rome, tied to Rome. And even, they even had a temple dedicated to Caesar in their city. So that tells us that there was emperor worship. Very, very pagan city. All this is to describe the nature of the city in which this church lived. This was the context that Jesus is writing to this church. It's in this environment that Jesus speaks these words and the letter begins like all the other letters, beginning with a reference to Jesus. The rest of verse 12 says, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. In each of the letters, it always begins with a reference to Jesus that ties back to chapter one. And in this case, it's chapter one, verse 16, that says, in his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. So in case we were wondering who is actually speaking these words to the church, in fact, it is Jesus. Jesus is speaking to the church. He is the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. And the sword here is a symbol of judgment. That's what the sword was. That, that's what the sword indicated. Now, we said that Pergamon was close to Rome, tied to Rome. And what that meant is that, that there was authority in Pergamum by the governor to have authority to, or the right to, or the power to execute. That would have been known that in Pergamum, Rome had the authority, the authority of the sword to execute. And so here, in contrast to, to such authority of the states, we find that Jesus is the one who holds or has the sharp two-edged sword. You see the contrasts. Here's this government tasked with, given to, this, the power, the, the authority to execute. And then this letter says that Jesus actually has the sharp two-edged sword. Whose authority will you follow? That becomes the question. Verse 13, I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is. Now, once again, we, we see this in each letter as well. Those first two words, I know. Each letter begins with Jesus stating that he knows something. He knows them. They may think, you may think. No, nobody knows my situation. Nobody knows my plight. Nobody knows my circumstances. Nobody knows how hard it is for me to follow Jesus. And Jesus actually says this, I know. I know where you dwell. I know what's going on. Jesus actually knows nothing escapes him. For this church, he knew where they dwelt. What does it say? Where Satan's throne is. Now, this may be a reference to pagan religions, which seems obvious enough, or an indication uh, of this altar to Zeus. Nevertheless, it is, it is communicating to us that in this city, Satan had dominant power. There, there was an exercise of this power, this evil power. It was not friendly. It was not a friendly place to those who per, would not participate in false worship. Like the church in Smyrna that Pastor Chris walked us through last week, this church too faced persecution. Nevertheless, in the face of the persecution, Jesus gives this commendation in the rest of verse 13. It says this, yet, so I know where you live. I know that you live where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name 
and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. In the midst of paganism, in the midst of cult worship, what Jesus sees in this church is that there were some who were willing to be faithful. There were some who did not deny the faith. They held fast Jesus' name. This this holding fast is something we see multiple times in these letters. Four times, in fact. We've already seen it in the first church. We see it here in the third church, and we'll see it two more times in chapter 3. This idea of holding fast means perseverance. It means faithfulness. Jesus is looking at these Christians living in a hostile, a hostile environment saying, guess what? I see you. I know you've been faithful. I know that even in the midst of such difficulty, you have been faithful. And he even identifies one particular man, Antipas. Now, we don't know much about this man named Antipas, but what we do know is that he was a faithful witness who was killed among them where Satan dwells, which seems to indicate that he was a martyr. He was a martyr for his faith. In this city, he refused the, the worship of other idols He refused the worship of other gods. He feared God's judgment more than Rome's. Living out our faith carries a cost. It carries a cost. All who wish to live godly will suffer. That's what the Bible tells us. Faithful perseverance lives with eternity's values in view. It believes that Jesus is better than life. That was true for Antipas and these other faithful Christians at Pergamum. They didn't count their life dear to themselves. They actually believed that the worship of Jesus was greater than the worship of false religions. James Hamilton writes, To deny the faith in the face of death would be to declare that one believes life in the here and now is better than Jesus. Better than having life he promises, which cannot be defeated by death. Some of us are are very afraid of death. And Jesus is saying of these faithful Christians You are willing to be faithful even unto death. Why? Because they had a a greater vision than the life here and now. They believed that Jesus was better than life. There were those in Pergamum who were faithful. Even today, there are Christians around the world who are unwilling to deny the faith, even under threat of death. And I wonder what Jesus might say about us. If he were to say, I know where you dwell. I know that you dwell in an increasingly secular society. And yet, you hold fast to my name and you did not deny my faith. Would he say that of us today? May God find us faithful. May he find us unwilling to bow our knee to any false teaching, any pagan religion, any idolatrous government. And whereas there were those who were faithful, verses 14 and 15 tell us that not everybody was faithful. And Jesus gives a criticism in these verses. Look at verse 14. But I have this, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold 
the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So we find here that the moral compromise had already entered into the church. Not by, to everyone, but by some. Satan attacks the church from the outside. He does, in fact, do that. He does that through persecution. He does that through threats. We see that. But we also understand that Satan attacks the church from the inside. And he does so through moral compromise and false teaching. Within the church... At Pergamum, there were some who held to the teaching of Balaam. Now, Balaam is a reference to an Old Testament prophet. You go back to Numbers chapters 22 through 25. This prophet used his position as a prophet of God for his own profit to, to get money and proceeded to lead the children of Israel into sin, specifically to eat food sacrificed to idols. That's idolatry and practice sexual immorality. That's evil. That's wickedness. God judged their sin in chapter 25 with a plague, and 24,000 people died. God will not be mocked. God will not be mocked. He was not mocked then, and he will not be mocked today. The consequence consequences came for sin and the consequences will come for sin in our day as well. Verse 15, Jesus connects Balaam with the Nicolaitans. Look at verse 15. So also, so also, so there there are some who hold to that. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now the word Balaam in the Hebrew means Lord of people and the word Nicolaitans means to rule the people. So in a sense, what Jesus is saying is there, there's a, a, a synonym here. There's a, they are analogous. The, the same kind of teaching is happening. Like the false teaching of Balaam, the Nicolaitans had invaded the church with teaching that led to idolatry and immorality. Now this isn't that hard to believe, is it? By, based on what we know of Pergamum. That they would be led or misled into idolatry and into immorality. Some in the church wanted to appease the culture of the city, but in so doing, they displeased Jesus. And so the question then comes to us, who are we living to please? Do we want to please the culture, or do we want to please the Lord? Warren Wearsby says it this way, where there is false teaching... Idolatry and immorality are close behind. We must not compromise our theology upon which our morality is founded. We see it in Pergamum and we see it today. A compromise, idolatry, immorality in the church today are a real and present danger. It's a real and present danger. That's not something that's just back in the book of Revelation That's today. Secularism is real. Moral relativism is real. Sensuality, liberalism, licentiousness is real. We can see the dangers today 
in progressive theology that encourages the affirmation and approval of or tolerance of other lifestyles or other sexualities outside of the biblical model. It's happening today. And we can just say this, any affirmation of that which brings God's judgments cannot be loving. To affirm what God has forbidden cannot be love. It can't be. So any progressive theology, any idea that says we love those people, yes, we love the people, sure enough. But any sense that we affirm behaviors that God forbids is the, is the antithesis of love. It isn't love. It isn't loving to do anything of the nature. Christian after Christian, church after church have compromised on the biblical teaching concerning these matters. And what happens? Idolatry and immorality follow. Now, you know as well as I do that the cultural pressure is coming and in some place already is. It's already there. At some point, it is likely that, that all churches in the West will feel the pressure to capitulate, to surrender, to change our theology, to compromise on what we believe the Bible teaches, to surrender to the moral revolution. And maybe you've already felt the pressure. Maybe there's people in your life who are already pressuring you to do just that. Maybe you are considering yielding to the, the current culture's religion, and it is a religion. But go back to the scriptures. The prophets say, go back to the ancient path. Go back to the word. What does the word say about our relationship with the world and the world system? James chapter four, verse four says, friendship with the world is enmity with God. Romans chapter 12, verse two says, do not be conformed to the world. First John chapter two, verse 15 says, do not love the world or the things in the world. It doesn't mean we don't love people. It means the system of the world. It means worldliness. We ask again, who are you living to please? Who are you living to please? And we might not want to believe that this can happen. This kind of moral compromise could happen in a church like ours, maybe, or in a town like ours, or among families in our church. But how does it happen? Well, it happens, as we've already said, from pressure from the world. We are living in an increasingly secular world. That means the absence of a theistic authority. We're increasingly living in that, that culture, and there's pressure to accommodate. But what you can know about accommodating the culture or accommodating the world is that eventually it involves identifying with the world. We're going to read in the book of Genesis, but when Lot chose to live towards Sodom and Gomorrah, what transpired? The closer he got, the more identity it became. The pressure from the world, false teaching itself. The false teacher doesn't have to stand in the pulpit either. The false teacher can sit in a pew, can sit in a Sunday school class. He can be in a life group. He can be in the foyer, spouting off. False teacher doesn't have to have a title. 
When we went through our study in 1 John, we talked about just that. There are many false prophets who have gone out into the world. John chapter 4, verse 11. In Jude, chapter, Jude verses 3 and 4 says this, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing you to contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. For, why? Because certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. How does the church move into moral compromise by false teaching? And let's be clear, this is a strategy of Satan himself. This is a weapon of Satan. And why does it work so well? One commentator notes three reasons why it works so well. One is that it's hardly noticed. Compromise is hardly noticed. It's little by little. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, he writes as, as a senior demon to a junior demon about how, how we would, how they would tempt or uh, oppress Christians. And he writes this as, as a demon writing. The, indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. How does moral compromise happen? Little by little. That's how it happens. It's subtle. It's insidious. Secondly, it always lowers the standard. Moral compromise never raises the standard. It always lowers the standard. And we could all get on with that, right? Lower the standard. We, we all want lower standards, it would seem, right? In our flesh. And thirdly, it's seldom offensive. Moral compromise is seldom offensive to others. Now, it might be offensive to a Christian, but it's not offensive to the world. Why? Because we're conceding. We're conceding ground. So, of course, it's not going to be offensive. It's been said that what one generation tolerates, the next generation will accept. And what one generation accepts, the next generation celebrates. Sounds about right, huh? And we can look at the current state of things and lament where the generation is. But if that quotation is an accurate summation of the situation, then we're all culpable. Generations from past and generations in present. We're all culpable. This church here in Pergamum was, as well, guilty of moral compromise. It was happening. It wasn't being stopped. And so what is the answer? What is Jesus' remedy for the situation? Well, verse 16, we read Jesus' call to the church, and it's two words, in the first uh, two, verses, two words of verse 16, therefore, repent. Here's the, here's, the, here's the remedy to our sin problem. Here's our remedy to the moral, the immorality that we have, the compromise that's going on. Repent. Whatever the sin, whatever the severity, the answer, the solution, the way forward was and always is to repent. That's it. That's the answer. Repentance here in throughout these letters is an ongoing repentance. It's not just a one-time repentance. It's a repenting over and over again. Why? Because we sin over and over again. 
Doesn't mean we need to get saved over and over again, but it means we continue to repent each time we do. It's a turning from sin and a turning to God. Our repentance is not only something we confess with our mouth, but it's a way of life. It's a change of heart, not just a change of mind. Burke Parsons says, the greatest evidence that you have truly repented in your life is that you continue to repent the rest of your life. The evidence of a Christian is not that they don't sin. That's not the evidence. The evidence is that they can repent because they are enabled and convicted by the Spirit of God to do so. So the refusal to repent of a professing Christian calls into question their Christianity. Repent. The sins of the church of Pergamum were moral compromise, a believing false teaching. But these sins could be forgiven. They can be forgiven. Even those sins can be forgiven if they would but repent. And here's the great news for us this morning. Your sins and my sins can be forgiven too. If we will but repent. God offers that assurance through Jesus. Because Jesus died for our sins, because he took the penalty for our sins, our sins can be forgiven if we will but repent and believe on him. That's the invitation. That's the remedy. The remedy is repent. Doesn't mean it's easy, but it's simple in the sense that we know what it is. But Jesus goes on to say this. If the church doesn't, then there's going to be a problem. Look at the rest of verse 15. If not, if no repentance, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. If they reject Jesus' call, judgment would come. This is divine discipline, and it is eminent. I will come soon. I'm coming. This isn't second coming. This is judgment. This is discipline, divine discipline. He would war against them with what? The sword of his mouth. That takes us back to verse 12. It takes us back to chapter 1, verse 16. The sword of his mouth. God, through Christ, brings judgment. Sin is serious. Sin will be judged. The absence of repentance brings judgment. So listen to verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Listen, hear it. Jesus is, he concludes every letter with, with this same sentence. And after he, is, he has told them something positive in, in many cases, and after he has criticized them, he gives them a solution and he ends with, listen to me. Pay attention to what I'm saying. Hear what the solution is. Hear what your remedy is. I'm not leaving you without hope. There is hope. There's hope for you. There's hope for me. This letter was written to a church in Pergamum. That's true, a singular church. But through the spirits, what does it say? Hear what the spirit says to the churches. That there's a plural there, which means this, this applies to all the churches. It applies to the people of God, including you and me. This idea of moral compromise is, it's subtle. And we may not want to believe that it could be true in our life, but it's way more dangerous than we may know. And so listen Listen to Jesus. Repent. Well, Jesus concludes this letter with a promise or, or a confirmation. He says, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. 
And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Again, we have this to the one who conquers in all these letters as well. We said this two weeks ago, but to the one who conquers means to the one who overcomes. That, de- that idea of overcoming in chapter 5 of 1 John tells us whoever believes by faith. So to the one who believes by faith, what? Three things. I will give some of the hidden manna. Now manna should, should cause us to go back to the Old Testament, right? And remember, this was how God miraculously supplied the Israelites with food, with heavenly food. This was God's way of providing for his people. So this provision of hidden manna or heavenly food is is, uh, promised and it's in contrast to what he's already said about Balaam and this this eating of, of idolatrous food, unclean food. So Jesus is saying what the false religion promises that cannot deliver, I'm actually delivering. The nourishment that you think you're getting or you, you seek elsewhere outside of God, it's actually found in Jesus. He is the hidden manna, in fact. One writer says it this way, Jesus is the true bread from heaven. Those faithful to Christ will have transcendent fellowship with him. And what do we know about what Jesus said in John chapter six is that he is the bread of life. So here in Revelation chapter 2, when Jesus is saying, I'll give some of the hidden manna, he's saying, I'm giving you the nourishment you need. And what is the nourishment? The bread of life. And who is the bread of life? It's him. Jesus is saying, I'll give you some of me. That's the promise. You get Jesus. And what else? A white stone. Now this one is a little bit more mysterious and there's a lot of different ideas so there's not a lot of consensus on what this means but we might understand this to be a sign of acceptance and victory in Jesus. So whereas the manna provided nourishment that idolatry could not provide, here this white stone of acceptance provides intimacy that sexual immorality seeks to provide. Do you see how Jesus is answering these two, these two problems that false religions have brought? False religions promise, or false religions are idolatry and immorality. They bring idolatry and immorality. And Jesus says, what you seek in idolatry, you find in Jesus. What you seek, the intimacy that you seek in sexual immorality, you actually find in Christ. In this acceptance, in this belonging that only comes through Christ. And on this stone, what? There's a new name. A new name. One commentator says that this is a a mark of a genuine membership in the community of the redeemed, without which entry into the eternal city of God is impossible. What is Jesus doing? Jesus is promising eternal life to the one who conquers, to the one who believes by faith. What do they receive? They receive Jesus. They receive acceptance. They receive eternal life in the city of God. Theologian Andrew Knowles writes, Christ calls his people to live pure lives now. He will provide for them and strengthen them day by day. Just as he nourished his people with manna in the wilderness, 
Jesus describes himself as the bread of life, a reality celebrated and shared in holy communion. You see, in the bread and the cup, in communion, we see the provision of God. We see Jesus, this one who was pierced for our transgressions, this one who bled in order to cover our sin. It is Jesus and the salvation he offers that brings us into the family of God. Jesus' promises to the church in Pergamum are promises for you and me, in a sense, that we too, we too can know God. We too can be welcomed into the eternal city of God. We too can have Jesus. And it's to him now that we turn our eyes. Our God.